Well, it's good to be with you this Lord's Day. I invite you to open your Bible, if you have it, to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Our sermon text will be John 2, 13 to 23. And if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The word of God reads, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these, out away. Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. I learned this week that a few years ago, the Smithsonian had an exhibit on the history of house cleaning. And in that exhibit, there was a diary. And in the diary, there was an entry from a housewife from 1864, and this is what she wrote. Swept and dusted sitting room and kitchen 350 times. Filled lamps 362 times. Swept and dusted chamber and stairs 40 times. It is said that these drudgery journals detailed the housekeeping rituals of that era, and they shed light for historians, for historians on why the biggest house cleaning of the year traditionally happened in the spring. Some say that the warmer weather and the longer days allowed for better cleaning, and thus we came up with the expression spring cleaning. Now, as you know, spring cleaning is the practice of thoroughly cleaning a house in the springtime. It is not to get things ready for the summer so much as it is to get rid of all of the filth that has built up over the winter. I also learned this week that in 2003, an organization called National Spring Cleaning Week was established, and there is an actual website that will tell you how to clean your house for one week during the spring. Now, in case some of you are interested in doing that this year, too late, we missed it. It was back in March, and so you have to wait till next year to do your spring cleaning. In the meantime, go to springcleaningweek.com for more details. 
Now, what you might not know is that some historians have actually discovered and they believe that the notion of spring cleaning actually originated with the Jews while they were in Egypt. And they trace it back to this time when the Jews during the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread were required to go through their house top to bottom and remove all the vestiges of leaven from their homes. And that called for deep cleaning. Since Passover and Unleavened Bread feasts take place in the spring, the idea for spring cleaning developed. This tradition of deep cleaning during the spring has spilled over to Catholic and Orthodox traditions. They also clean in the spring. They will take time to clean their altars and the temples and their homes. They all undergo a deep cleaning. So spring and Passover, temple and cleaning, what does that, all of that have to do with our story today? Well, I think you're going to see that it has a lot to do with it. Because in this story, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and as you just heard in the reading, he does some deep spring cleaning at the temple. The Passover was this annual worship service that was commemorated by God's people. It commemorated their deliverance from Egypt. The book of Leviticus says that these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at that time. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, that is the Lord's Passover. The law tells us that everyone, especially the males, were required to present themselves and their offerings before the Lord at this holy gathering or else be cut off, excommunicated from the community of God's people. The book of Numbers says, If anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. So thousands upon thousands of worshipers would gather at Jerusalem once a year and they would come from all over Galilee and Judea to celebrate the Passover. Jesus was among those worshipers. He went up as a worshiper to keep Passover. This holy gathering would take place not only in the city of Jerusalem, but more specifically at the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the place that God had chosen to put his name and the place where he dwelt with his people. So at the temple, imagine thousands upon thousands of people gathering and pressing to get into the temple complex. Lambs were being sacrificed, roasted, and eaten. Children were also being catechized and instructed in the meaning of the Passover. Parents were to explain to them, this is according to the law, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You don't have the right to say, well, this is how I feel about it, and this is what Passover means to me. The answer is, you say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our houses. And the people bow, would bow their heads and worship the Lord. 
And so you can imagine this high holy event taking place in Jerusalem, and Jesus is right there in the midst of it all. As I said, the temple was the center of this activity. It's called the place of worship. It is considered God's house. That's where He dwelled with His people. Jesus shows up to God's house, supposedly the most sacred place on all the earth, a place where God would meet with His people. And on the day that He showed up in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and there were money changers sitting there. In other words, instead of finding worshipers, Jesus found shoppers and vendors. The religious leaders had turned the temple complex into an emporium, a market for buying and selling animals to be used for sacrifices. Now, there are many things we could say about the corruption and the extortion that came along with this market, but the concern in John's gospel is not so much that part, which is still true. His concern is with the location of this market. The emphasis in this story is on the location of the market, not the corruption and extortion that came with it. The marketplace was set up at the temple. And granted, it was not set up at the inner court of the temple near the altar right in front of the temple proper. It is set up at the outer court at the entrance in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. Now that's going to be significant, so hang on to that thought. Court of the Gentiles, I'm going to come back to it in a moment. I don't know if you have noticed this or seen much of this in your life, but when I lived in Mexico, it was not uncommon to go to some of the more touristy cathedrals or temples and see in front of those cathedrals uh, markets that were set up. Indigenous peoples would come in and they would sell their, their tapestries or their goods, and they set up there not because they were trying to abuse the temple, but because they were taking advantage of the high volume of tourist traffic, so they knew that that's a good place to make money. It would be easy for us to scoff and kind of shrug these kinds of things off. That would never happen in our culture. We would never do what the Jews did in Jerusalem or what people do in Mexico in front of their churches. We would never do that. No, in the U.S., it is far more common, especially in megachurches, to see coffee shops and bookstores and playgrounds and daycares set up in the church building. I will spare you my low opinion of such things, but I've heard that these are just services that are offered as a matter of convenience. Yeah. I mention all of this because I want you to see that we, in fact, are not very different from our forefathers, nor are we much better than they. With just the right amount of marketing spin, we can justify almost anything in the name of religious service, family values, children's ministry, so long as it's safe for the whole family. You know, safe, like the cross. Now don't get me wrong, our temples and churches are not at all the same things that the temple at Jerusalem was. In other words, our places of worship are not places that are designated as God's dwelling place. God does not claim to live in this gym. 
We're going to see later in John's Gospel that God no longer dwells in stone temples or on special mountains. And that's why we're able to convert even this gym into a sanctuary for two hours every week and worship God in spirit and truth. But in our story, I want you to see that Jesus was upset because people who claimed to be the people of God had turned his father's house into a marketplace. Now there's more to the story than meets the eye. I want to give you a little background here. You might read the story and think, these people just had the idea of a marketplace that just popped into their heads out of nowhere. That's not actually the case. What you actually find in the scripture is that the law of God gave the people a reason to do this. In other words, the law allowed God's people to take their tithes and travel to Jerusalem with their money in a handbag and then buy whatever they needed for worship at that time. Listen to what the law says. If the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, and that means transport your animals, your grain, your wine, whatever it is you were going to bring for offering. When the Lord blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, go to the place the Lord has chosen, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. In other words... God provided for His people. is a very practical, convenient thing that God did for His people. And so it made sense that they would show up in Jerusalem and buy and trade at that place. That is not the problem. You have a very good thing that God established that was corrupted and turned into a bad thing. So, just to be very clear here, buying and selling animals at Jerusalem was not the problem. That was not the bad or the wrong thing. But buying and selling animals at the temple was wrong. And furthermore, doing it in the court of the Gentiles took it from bad to worse. And here's why. Because it was inhospitable in the deepest sense of the word. Not only did it profane God's house and make it unclean, but it prevented Gentiles from worshiping God at His temple. A temple which God had established as a house of prayer for all nations, not just the Jewish people. So God has a place, a special place for Gentiles so they can draw near to worship Him. Only now they can't draw near to worship because their court has been turned into a marketplace and they can't get past the money changers and the vendors and the shoppers and the animals to get in to worship God. That, in John's gospel, is the thing that offends Jesus the most. And this, in fact, is something that Jesus simply could not pass over at Passover. And so you know what he does in this story. If you think deeply about it, you'll see this. He dramatically reverses the Paschal story by using a whip to strike the house of Israel and to drive them out of his house. 
The scene is reminiscent of Isaiah 1, which we heard before the sermon, where God said to his people on a separate occasion, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. I cannot endure iniquity and so in your solemn assembly." So Jesus goes into the temple and like a prophet, he cries out against the corrupt leaders. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And like a priest, Jesus cleanses the temple for worship. He makes a whip of cords and drives out the animals from the temple. And like a king, he casts out his enemies. He's pouring out the coins of the money changers, overturning their tables, and driving out the men, not just the animals. Why? Well, John explains it this way, that it was the zeal of the Lord that stirred him and moved him to purge the temple and protect his father's house. Now, in my years of teaching through this text, it never fails that someone will hear this story, feel a little confused or concerned about what Jesus has done. And they will ask, why did Jesus make a whip? Did he actually strike the money changers or just the animals or both? Why did he go so crazy in the temple? Well, the Greek makes it clear that Jesus used the whip to cast out first and foremost the money changers with all of their animals. So his target is not the, the sheep and the oxen. They didn't have anything to do with it. They didn't show up on their own. Someone brought them there. So he goes past the middleman, right to the money changers, and drives them out. Now this is a sign of divine judgment against Israel. One prophet said it this way, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal, he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. The psalmist said, zeal for your house will consume me. The word for consume there means to eat up, eat me up. Now, we're not used to seeing such zeal and passion for the things of God here in the 21st century where we are very refined in our expression of the Christian faith. We are far more cool-headed and even-keeled than Jesus was, which is just a fancy way of saying that we are far more apathetic about things like worship and mission than He was. And we're far more tolerant of sin than Jesus was. Not only sin in others, but then sin in ourselves as well. Now, I've seen this happen. We get fired up about all kinds of things. We get fired up about sports and about movies and politics, but not so much about religion and not nearly enough about the gospel. In general, our attitude is, mm, what's the big deal? To each his own, right? To each his own. 
But in sharp contrast to us, Jesus' burning passion for his father's house will devour him. It will literally eat him alive. It will chew him up and consume him. And you will see that clearly when we get to the cross. Now, if what Jesus did at the temple bothers you, rubs you the wrong way, let me ask you to ask yourself why it bothers you. Do you think Jesus was wrong to drive those people out of the temple? Do you think he was overreacting? Do you think he was right to drive the people out, but wrong to use force? Do you think that the money changers deserved a little more sympathy? Do you sympathize more with the money changers than you do with the Gentile worshipers who could not get into the court? Do you think that sins like the ones committed at the temple should be tolerated? Do you feel as zealous for the things of God as you should, might be the question. Now chances are, if you're like me, you do not feel as passionately about these things as Jesus did. And the reason, it, the reason you don't is, and the reason you can't is because you don't take them as personally as he did. I want you to look at it this way. He is the father's son. The son comes home to his father's house, and what does he see? He catches a bunch of people taking advantage of each other and trashing the place. And so in an effort to get them out, he picks a fight with them, a fight that will lead all of them to the cross, and it will ultimately lead to the destruction of the city and the temple. In other words, this fight is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The Jews sort of understood that Jesus was picking a fight, and so they say to him, Hey, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now notice, they don't say, You're a nut job. We don't care about you. We're going to put this, the market back in place. Everyone sort of pauses and waits and says, Maybe he's on to something. This indicates a couple of things about the Jews, and I want to say this because they get such a bad rap, but I, I want to sort of defend them for a moment. This indicates that they're giving Jesus benefit of the doubt, okay? They suspend judgment long enough to ask him for proof that he had authority to drive out money changers and dismantle their market. That's one thing. That's the positive thing. Here's the negative thing. It also indicates that they are spiritually blind and they fail to see that Jesus' cleansing of the temple was in itself a sign. A sign that the glory of God, which had departed centuries ago, was now returning and had returned in the flesh and was now back in their midst. But instead of fleshing all of that out for them, Jesus simply answers their question this way, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews said, that doesn't make sense. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You think you're going to raise it in three days? Now something you should note here is, our English doesn't help us, so I want to help you out a bit. The word for temple that's used here is different than the word for temple used in verse 14. The one that's used here 
refers to the sanctuary, the sacred place where God dwells. The one used in 14 refers to the whole temple complex with the buildings, the gates, and the courts. And so Jesus is speaking very specifically about something. Uh, the word sanctuary might help us. The Jews thought that Jesus meant destroy that sacred building and I will raise it up. But Jesus meant destroy this sacred body and I will raise it up in three days. Now this must have sounded so weird to those who heard it. It doesn't sound weird to us because we know the end of the story. We know this story, this story forwards and backwards. But try to put yourself into their frame of mind for a moment. The Jews knew what everyone knows, that rebuilding a temple in three days is an impossible architectural feat. It is not only impossible for one man, but it would be impossible for one man even with a large crew of men. There's no way that Jesus could do it in three days. He can't do in three days what took several hundred men 46 years to do. But let me ask you this. Which do you think is easier? To rebuild a temple in three days or to raise a dead body in three days? See, they're not thinking about the body, but Jesus is going way beyond their notion of what is possible and impossible. If the Jews had understood what Jesus meant about raising the sanctuary of his body from the dead in three days, they would have really freaked out. I mean, they wouldn't have just been thinking about stones falling to the ground and having to be put back together. They would have been thinking of, how does a body that dies come back to life again? Now, everything Jesus said is true, and yet it is so deeply true that no one is able to fathom what he meant until after the crucifixion and resurrection. After that, they're able to look back on this and say, oh, now it all makes sense. And I want to make a point about this for you. One reason you're able to understand things the way you do and the Jews could not is because you have the privilege and benefit of looking at history through the lens of crucifixion and resurrection. These are the lenses that actually put all of these stories into focus. They are the keys that unlock the mysteries. Now... We've just heard Jesus talk about resurrection. He hints at it. And we also learned that after his resurrection, his disciples then believed not only his words, but also the scripture. Okay? But where does the Old Testament scripture say anything about Jesus' resurrection? Let me give you a couple of examples. Okay? In Amos... Book of Amos 9.11, Amos says, in, or God says through Amos, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old. Remember, Jesus is the Word made flesh who tabernacled among us. And the prophet Hosea says in Hosea 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. And the psalmist says, 
My flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Now again, what is so obvious to us was obscure to them. So be merciful when you read them or be a little gracious and understand that they didn't see everything the way you see it. They didn't know that Jesus is the Word made flesh who tabernacled among us, who was destined to be destroyed by the hands of wicked men one day and then raised up by the power of God three days later. They didn't know that, but you do. And that changes everything, doesn't it? You know that Jesus is both the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Him shall live even if He dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. Do you believe this is the question. So let that soak in for just a moment. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book or in this story. But this particular sign was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I love the way the story ends because it ends with even though the disciples do not understand everything that just happened, even though they don't understand everything Jesus just said, Still, they believe in Him. And they believe in Him even more deeply after the resurrection when they're able to see things more clearly. All right, so that's the story of John 2, Jesus cleansing the temple. And just when you thought it was safe to relax, I want to say to you before we wrap it up that we need to find some way of applying this story, of engaging and entering this story with our own life. So here's what I, I want to do. I want to pose a couple of questions, and then I want to propose a couple of applications to help us work out this story in our life. I want to remind you, especially in case you've forgotten, that you are God's temple. And God's temple is holy. His temple is no longer made of stone and cedar. It's no longer located in Jerusalem. His temple is made of spirit and flesh. It's made of people like us. And it's scattered all over the world. It doesn't have a central location other than Christ. You are God's temple, and God's temple is holy. And so together, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. You're God's dwelling place. As individuals, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Why does all of that matter? It matters because just as we see in the story that Jesus has authority over the temple at Jerusalem, so now we see even more clearly in light of the crucifixion and resurrection that He has authority over the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means over you and over me, over our congregation and over the Holy Catholic Church. So here are the questions. What if Jesus came to our temple? And what if Jesus came to our congregation and came to our body? What would he find in our courts or our lives or in our hearts that would need to be cleansed? 
What would he find distasteful? What would he find contrary to the zeal of God? What would he find offensive in his father's house? Would he find in us what he found in the money changers at the temple? Would he find in us greed and covetousness and a love for money? Would he find in us what he found in the marketeers in the marketplace? Would he find nationalism, pride, racial discrimination? Would he find those things among us? Would he find in us what was found in some people in the history of God's community? Other secret sins like anger and deceit and lust. Would he find those things among us? Would he find us neglecting to do the good things we know we ought to do? Like welcoming the stranger and alien into his house. Like shining as a light to our community. Like reaching out to others with the gospel. Making sure that our community knows that the doors of the house of God are open to their prayers. What if Jesus came to our temple, to our sanctuary, to our body? What would he find? I'm sure he would find all of these things and more among us to lesser and greater degrees. The next question is, what would he do with us if he found those things? Would he come to us with a whip? Or would he come to us with love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, I think you understand the gospel well enough to know that he would come to us with love in the Holy Spirit and call us to go out from the midst of those idolaters and unbelievers and to be set apart from them and to touch no unclean thing. For as God says, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We need to remember that we are not our own. We were bought with a price and the price was the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is our response to that? What is the right way to respond to those things? It is to glorify God in your body. You as individuals are called to glorify God in your body, which is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And together as a church, we are called to glorify God in our body, which is also a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? It means that not only does He take away all your sins to the cross, but it means that by sending His Spirit, He is able to cleanse your temple, to purify your body, to sanctify your life. In other words, Jesus does more than pardon your sins. He does not give you permission to sin. He pardons your sin, but He also gives you power to purge your life, to purge your sins, and to overcome them. That is the power of the blood of the Lamb. Now, it's been my experience that no one ever had to give me passion for sin. Maybe your experience is different. But it just came naturally to me. No one ever told me how to do it. No one had to teach me. It was just there. But zeal for the Lord does not come naturally to any of us. 
It must be given to us by God alone. It is only the Lord who can turn our natural passion for sin into zeal for the Lord and His truth, His beauty, His goodness. And so I urge you with all your hearts, let us pray and ask the Lord to give us zeal for His house. And let us take time in the next few days to do some spring cleaning in our own hearts and in our own life. God's Word says that Jesus is coming. It's not hypothetical. Jesus is coming. His promise is that He will make everyone who overcomes their sinful passions a pillar in the temple of His God. Neither shall He go out of it, and He will write on Him the name of God and the name of the city of God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from God and out of heaven. And He will write on you His new 